0: Oh, epidemic by 50% in five years. It's a bold goal, but pulling everyone together, we think that we can get it done, and I'm happy to be here today talking with Uh, y'all. Today is
1: also National Voter Registration Day, so this is a friendly reminder to all of our listeners. You have three weeks from today to register to vote before the crucial upcoming midterm elections. Go to -to registertovoteflorida.gov to register or to update your registration?
2: I'm going to just repeat that because we had technical difficulties at the beginning. So I want to say today's wave maker is Jennifer Webb, a former state lawmaker, legislator from Gulfport who passed benchmark behavioral health legislation and was awarded the National Alliance on Mental Illness Legislator of the Year in 2020 for her efforts. She is now executive director of Live Tampa Bay, a coalition coalition of business, faith, nonprofit, and philanthropic leaders with a singular objective, stop the tide of opioid deaths in our community. Thanks for being with us, Jennifer.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Um, More than 75,000 Americans died from overdose of synthetic opioids, mainly fentanyl, in the 12-month period ending in February 2022, according to the CDC. Florida is second only to California in the number of opioid-related deaths with nearly 8,000 in the past 12 months. According to Live Tampa Bay, an average of 30 people die um, from drug overdoses each week in the Tampa Bay area, and 34 people in the area are resuscitated from overdoses with Narcan every single day. Fentanyl, in particular, is so deadly in Florida that in July, the Florida Department of Health issued a safety alert advising the public to identify and respond to a fentanyl overdose. Developed as a powerful painkiller that's up to 100 times more potent than morphine, as little as 2 milligrams of fentanyl, about the size of 5 grains of salt— Can be fatal. Today we're going to be talking with Jennifer about the problem in Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay area, and how it's being addressed, as well as we'll be um, listening to some recovery stories because September is recovery month. Um, The rested and ready John Dunn is answering our phones for us today. Uh, If you want to join this conversation and talk about um, what you think needs to be done to address the opioid epidemic or tell us your story of recovery, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 and John will get you through to us. You can also send us an email at dj at wmnf.org or you can send us a text to 813-433-0885. So Jennifer, talk to us a little bit. How dire is the problem
0: in the Tampa Bay area? So we have doubled the number of deaths since before COVID due to opioid overdose, and the majority of those are fentanyl. Um, if you talk to any cop on the street, any deputy, what you'll hear is that the overwhelming amount of deaths are from fentanyl, that it's, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, illicit substances on our streets that, haven't, that don't have at least trace amounts of fentanyl in them, and that includes marijuana.
1: Does fentanyl have legitimate use?
0: It does. Um, it is sold as palliative care in some very extreme circumstances. So we're not talking about that. That's a really good question. That generally comes in patches. It's administered by folks who are providing end of life care for people generally with painful ailments like cancer.
1: You know, we've all been very familiar w- with the opioid crisis for the past ten years. It's been just—it just, it's just it seems like it just never ends. In fact. It seems like it's gotten worse because of fentanyl. Um, what is going on, and what do you, what can be done to stop this?
0: So, in terms of what's going on, I really think that the um, the oxycoton epidemic of the early two thousands exposed our Achilles' heel and really showed to chemistry labs in China what are weaknesses as a nation and that that really did exacerbate the epidemic because fentanyl has been throwing gasoline on on the opioid epidemic and so and so those two things that is definitely part of what the what the kind of the history or the etymology or the um, etiology of the problem and then what can be done I think we need a whole host of things. It's not a simple answer. And people who are looking for silver silver bullets are misled because really what we need is we need a law enforcement approach. We need a behavioral health approach. We need um, treatment and addiction services in addition to mental health. We need early intervention and we need to help people sustain recovery. In Florida, where we didn't expand Medicaid, we also need to invest in in non-emergency interventions like recovery support services or prevention and those types of things.
1: So is the fentanyl, I just want to clarify this one thing. The the rise of fentanyl is because of the crackdown on OxyContin. Do you think is that, is oh, there a I relationship there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the first wave was OxyContin. The yeah. second wave was heroin when um, the DEA's Really cracked down on OxyContin, and when law enforcement cracked down on OxyContin, and then the third wave was the um, synthetic opioids, the street illicit, um, illicit street fentanyl, and other substances like that. So,
2: fentanyl. Then it seems to me there's three pieces to it. There's is it still used? It's still used legitimately as a painkiller. Yeah, as a patch. As so a patch. So it's like so it's super it, low dose.
0: Well, it's low dose. It's end of. I don't know what the dosing is because I'm not somebody who provides palliative care. But it's end of life care. This is like highly regulated. It goes into a database anytime it is prescribed, and folks really know how much they're um, giving to patients and how much they're receiving back at the end when somebody has actually passed.
2: And then there are some people who just take it recreationally, and that's what we're but, talking about. And then there are some. Then there's also the issue of people who are just. Trying to smoke marijuana or do cocaine or something like that, and it's laced so and that also is a problem. Is there one that's worse than the other, or are they both the same, or what is more problematic or
0: well so I think it's an additional edge to the problem. so if one side of the sword is um, is people who are intending to use heroin or something are now using fentanyl or they or their heroin is laced with fentanyl. Actually, it's really hard to get fentanyl now. It's a lot easier to get, uh, or it's hard to get heroin. It's a lot easier to get fentanyl. Well, then um, your chances of overdosing are higher, even though as a big, as a population, you're less likely to die for if you are a normal intravenous drug user of these type of substances. Um, also, if you're somebody who uses these type of substances, you probably have Narcan. Hopefully you have Narcan at hand. And so you're, in case of an overdose, you can revive yourself. What has really captured the attention of media, and I think is really heartbreaking, is you know kids who are experimenting with recreational drugs. They take something that they don't even realize has fentanyl in it. Um, they get a, they're stressed out for a test. Their friend says, "Hey, take this." Um, they take it and they die because it's actually fentanyl pressed to look like Xanax. And they had no idea. They had no intention of using it. And they didn't have a shot of getting naloxone, which would have saved their lives.
1: Is yes. this an intentional thing on the part of uh, the manufacturers that they're trying to kill Americans?
0: I think that, well, so... Drug dealer, like if it's a market, would would you kill your customers? Maybe not, but if you're dealing with a substance that the difference between fatal and um, highly intoxicating is really minuscule, and you don't have high tech lab equipment when you're doing the final preparations, then it's easy to accidentally kill people. Um, But you know what? There are test strips that folks could test their supply with um, to make sure that they're not killing people. And so that could be a solution to making sure that you don't, unintention- that if you're not intending to kill people, that you don't actually kill them. So we were talk- we've
2: talked a little bit about the extent of the problem, which I think everybody, you know, most people are aware of. I, there were, you, were, you were talking about accidental overdoses. There was just a story not too long ago in the local um, paper about a, an emergency uh, call. Six people um, in East Tampa, who had all been made sick, were non-responsive and not breathing, and then a seventh person called in from their home that they all had taken some type of a drug, uh, did not know that it had fentanyl in it, and all became really sick and, and almost died. Um, and then the person actually who provided that drug to them was was arrested. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what's being done to address the problem. Um The governor, Ron DeSantis, actually has appointed a state drug czar, Doug Simon. He was in Tampa recently for International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, He's the director of the Office of Drug Control in the governor's office. Tell us about that. Is that something that Live Tampa Bay supports, and
0: is Doug Simon doing a good job? Yeah, actually, this is a piece of legislation legislation that um, Senator Roussan and myself um, carried my first year in the legislature and advocated vociferously for and Um, Actually, right before the deadline of, are we going to move this through the process, the governor called and his office said, you know what, the governor likes um, this idea so much that he is just going to executive order it to make sure that it actually gets created. And this was a position that had been um, in existence uh, up until Rick Scott. Rick Scott, during the economic downturn, actually did away with it and It was reconstituted just recently by the governor. And Doug Simons is doing a great job. I mean, he is showing up at places. He's helping to coordinate efforts. A czar is different than a secretary in that they can actually coordinate across departments. So he's helping to break down those silos. And I think we're seeing some additional... um, movement from the executive office and from the departments as a result of working more closely together. So the governor recently came out with um, the core program, which is a bridge program, which we have amazing bridge programs in Florida. What What does that mean? Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. So bridge programs are programs that help to break down the silos. So after you go to the emergency department, then what? Well, if you don't, if there's not somebody who's there to help you get into treatment, you might not go if you just get a piece of paper. And so a lot of emergency departments have set up these programs where they hire certified peer support specialists to actually take the person who has just overdosed and walk them and help them get into a follow-up treatment, whatever follow-up treatment is best for them. And then they, in, in the case of Tampa General Hospital, they have amazing retention for 30 days later and... And also, they don't have folks coming back. They've seen a reduction in the folks that are coming, that they've revived, who have gone through their program, who then they have to revive again in the emergency department. So it's really effective.
2: And then you you talk about something else I, I've heard. They call it the gentle handoff.
0: Yeah. What, explain that. What is the gentle handoff? So the gentle handoff, is, whether it's an emergency department or a police department. So let's say that the person says, I absolutely do not want to go to the emergency room. Thank you for reviving me officer so-and-so, but I'm staying here in my house. Well, officers have started calling certified peer support specialists and saying, hey, can you use your experience to help relate to the person who's just overdosed so that they feel confident that they can then get into recovery and sustain recovery or get into treatment. And so that's what we call the warm handoff. That's actually a person sitting down with a person who has just had this traumatic experience, uh, almost losing their life and saying, you know what, there's a different way. Like, I did it. I know exactly what you're going through. I've been through it. And here, just there's this place down the road. It's great. We can get you in. You know, do you want to give it a shot? And that has proven just amazingly effective at helping to connect people to Treatment and recovery after a near-death experience. If you're
2: just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest today is Jennifer Webb. She's the executive... Executive Director of Live Tampa Bay, a coalition of community leaders that's working to stem the tide of opioid deaths in our community. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org um, or you can send us a text message, 813-433-0885. Um, so you mentioned Peer counseling. Tell us a little bit about that. I know that there has been um, in the legislature some um, bills introduced that would um, sort of beef up the peer counseling programs that we have in in the state for helping people who are struggling with addiction. What's happening with that? Or is that that is being used
0: and widely and So we're scaling it up the state through the managing entities, which is where the behavioral health dollars flow from the Department of Children and Family, is really investing and amping up the number of trainings, getting folks certified, helping. And then generally these folks are associated oftentimes with an RCO, which is a recovery community organization. And those organizations, let's say that you're somebody who had a, substance use disorder and is now in recovery and when you were when you had a substance use disorder you were a petty criminal you stole people's pocketbooks to pay for drugs or things like that you rack up a, a criminal record and so what a lot of times these organizations will help these individuals once they're in recovery once time has passed then work, walk through the appeal process so that they can share their experience so that they can help others get into recovery. Because honestly, like, and, I, and it's simple brilliance because if you have a substance use disorder that brought you so low that you are, let's say, stealing from family members and your family members had to file a lawsuit uh, or file a police report against you in order for you to actually get into treatment facility that would hold you for a significant amount of time and that saved your life, you shouldn't then be cut off for, you know, in perpetuity for those things that had brought you so low. And so part of like the healing process and the the kind of the system of care now is to pull those people in and say, actually you have a special perspective. Like you understand what these folks are going through, can you share that so that you can help them get into the appropriate treatment, or so that you can just walk with them through their path on their path of recovery, so that they can, you know, build up what's called recovery capital. They're kind of build up their strength in their recovery, get well, and go out and live a and live a life that's second to none, as they say. Well, you
2: know, it's a lot like twelve step programs. It is. I mean, twelve step programs are really it's all. Peer counseling—that's what that is. They're not—I mean, you might have mental health professionals in there, but everybody's one one name and and helping each other their peers in that setting.
0: There's a lot of there's a lot of similarities. The cool thing is that th- from doing this work, I've learned of all of the multiple pathways that exist to help people get into recovery. Some folks use the churches. Some folks use Smart Recovery or. Um, rational recovery. Some folks do the 12-step programs. Um, some folks do a mixture of behavioral health therapy and other things. And whatever it is that really speaks to you and helps you take those steps in the right direction is what this, um, what these organizations are helping to connect people to.
2: We've got um, a call right now. We have Gary from Clearwater on the line, and he's got a question. He says his son is addicted to heroin. So, um, Gary, you're on the line right now. What's on your mind?
3: Hello. Um I want to tell everybody that, first of all, that there's help for people out there that have loved ones addiction, addicted to narcotics. Um, I go to a group called Naranon, and, um, mm-hmm. and I was a crazy, wild mess, emotional wreck. And this group, they called Naranon. There's people like me in there that have addicted loved ones. And um, I want to say, um, please contact Naranan. Look online. Look, um, you got a number. Look up on your phone, anywhere. But please get in touch with Naranan. And they And we follow those same 12 steps as Alan. Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you for the call, Gary. And yeah, families need to know how to deal with a loved one who's addicted. It's um, very, you, you know hard. I mean, a lot of times you hear about enabling where you're trying to help somebody over and over again. And, and, you know, what you're supposed to do is really let go with love, they say. But how hard is that when it's you're watching somebody destroy their life?
1: And some families uh, will take advantage of a state law called the Marchman Act Mm -hmm. and uh, go to a court and ask the judge to force them into treatment. Does that Approach work because I've I've often read that really un- until you accept the fact that you need help, it's going to be hard to recover. What 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 are your thoughts on that, Jennifer?
0: Well, so um, the Marchman Act is similar to the Baker Act except for it's specific to drug and al- alcohol, and so it's you uh, your life or you've put the life of a lo- of someone else at risk due to um, substance use disorder due to a substance use disorder. And so it really is not so much to get the person treatment, it's to keep the person from killing themselves or others. Um, I mean, it really is like, oh, you're such a danger right now because of the substances that you're taking that you need to be isolated and watched around the clock. And um, because of how the funding goes, sometimes that's like the easiest way to get a loved one into treatment or services. But you're right, I mean treatment getting into recovery deciding that your life is worth living is a deci- it's a decision it's a hitting a bottom deciding that you're going to do things differently but you, the thing is is that you never know when that's actually going to happen for someone it could happen in the Marchman Act facility it could happen um, on the street or it could happen in the boardroom or you know i mean there's a lot of different what there's a lot of different bottoms out there. And so what it, what is important is to make people aware that there is help and that people do recover. Because what the data show are that the more people hear stories of recovery, which I love that you're opening up the lines to hear from folks who have recovered, um, because the more people hear that, the more they're apt to actually reach out and get help and try to recover. We got an email from um,
2: Ziggy who says that, um, I'm going to read the email, Portugal has an across the board, um, let's see, Portugal has had an across-the-board decriminalization of all drugs, including heroin, since 2000, and it is a huge success. For the guests and hosts, what is your stance on across-the-board full decriminalization or soft legalization? Just copy Portugal. Huge success. That's what Ziggy says. What do you think, Jennifer? Is that something that comes up in your conversations about how to deal with
0: this crisis? Yeah, that hasn't come up in Florida. I know that it's come up in other places like California um, has safe injection sites, which is kind of a step in that direction. In Florida, we were hard fought to get um, needle exchange programs where people can bring their dirty needles um, and exchange them out for clean um, supplies so that they don't get HIV or hep C. And that was, I mean, a really hard, hard fought battle. And so, um, and so, yeah, I don't hear a lot of moving towards total legalization in Florida, and that would be probably a federal decision. Well, even
1: test strips are not mm. legal in Florida, right? So exactly. So talk, talk about that. I mean, wasn't there an attempt to legalize them?
0: There or? was. Uh, Representative Andrew Learned and Senator Chevron Jones had a bill to legalize fentanyl test strips, and it was then put onto another bill in the Senate that was carried by, actually, Senator Broder. Um the Senate was really excited to move forward on it. They thought it made sense. You know, if you can test your drugs, then you're less likely to die from uh, accidental poisoning from fentanyl. And unfortunately, the House didn't bite, and so they killed it. And, um, and so hopefully we'll see it pass this year. I've heard some early indications that leadership on both sides of the, on both, in both chambers are open to uh, fentanyl test strips, and that's a good thing because at this point we're one of the very few number of states that hasn't legalized these test strips. And we have such a problem. What what was the argument against it? Sorry, but what's the argument against it? It's the same argument that we saw against Narcan. When Narcan first came out, it's, well, if you save somebody's life, you'll encourage them to use drugs. And so it's, it's really tortuous logic that brings us there because mm-hmm. what we know is you save someone's life, you save someone's life. They're not going to use or not use based on whether they think that you can get there in time to revive them. But what will happen is that they won't die. And what I know is that you can't recover if you're dead. So where, it, where there's life, there's hope. Um,
2: we were talking, we've talked about the, the test strips and you're hoping that there'll be some legislation there. Anything else that we can expect in, from the legislature this year or hopefully on this I,
0: issue? That may, that may be the big one. That is going to be the big one. I think that we'll also see some, we might see some early legislation coming out of the commission on mental health and substance use that was convened uh, last year. That was, um, oh, sheriff promel is the chair Mm -hmm. of this and this is a really impressive behavioral health task force that's looking at our entire system i would love to see some legislative suggestions coming out of that out of that task force
2: we've got a bunch of calls on the line so let's take some of those we have nick and saint pete nick is a nurse who works with um uh, with addicts so um nick and saint pete you're on the line what's on your mind
4: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, my name is Nick Ciappone. I'm a nurse in St. Pete, um, certified in addictions and um, psychiatric nursing. And I really appreciate the dialogue this morning because it's something that I feel like isn't um, discussed enough. And it affects everybody. You know, they say from park place to park bench, you know, addiction has pretty much touched anybody that mm-hmm.
5: you,
4: um open up a conversation with. So I work with Pinellas County Harm Reduction Initiative with Natalie Powers McNeil, and she does a lot of street outreach. And what we are encountering a lot of the time in St. Pete is that people sometimes, once you have a rapport with people, and we hand out Narcan and um, do some wound care and things like that, people are open to the idea, once you have a rapport with them, of going to treatment. But there's, like, almost nowhere that you can bring someone with, like, no money, right. no insurance, and kind of bring them there to detox. I think a lot of people are under this impression that we have these resources out there, and we just don't have them. So what's going on is there's this underground movement of people who are kind of working outside the normal um, the normal channels of things that are distributing Narcan, that are doing other harm reduction methods, um, and there's a lot of red tape in, involved with that, too. Like St. Pete's been supposed to having this syringe exchange going up and, and for a long time, and it's still not in operation as far as I know. Um, Tampa has one, Miami has one, but that's it for Florida. And it's been, you know, it was legalized in Florida, I think, in 2016.
2: Is that, Jennifer has a comment, is that correct about the needle exchange? Do we have that
0: anywhere in Florida? We have um, needle exchanges in places other than Tampa and Miami. Um, we ha- So there's a three-part process. But it, there it's, is one in Tampa? Yeah, there is. Um, okay. my, it is the Tampa ID exchange. It is hosted by Tampa General Hospital, actually. They're mm. the sponsor of it. And mm-hmm. they are, they tend to set up... They have one location over by University Mall, over by USF, and um, they've been pretty successful. I know the one down in Miami. There's also um, Rebel Recovery and Broward, oh, Palm Beach County. Um, mm-hmm. So they're popping up in different counties. The problem is is it's a three-step three process. So the first step is having to pass a statute at the county level. The second is put things out to bid so that somebody will... Bid on the statute and set up the um, needle exchange program, and the third step is actually getting it off the ground. And there is a harm reduction conference this week in Treasure Island. It's the first annual harm reduction conference, and it is going to be on the twenty second. And I'm pretty excited because it is, like Nick said, a great opportunity for striking those relationships that can then that then become a warm handoff or a warm transfer to a place for treatment, for recovery, to help get people the support services, the recovery support services that they need. And Nick, you'll probably be interested to know, and this is one thing that Live Tampa Bay has been working on with um, the harm reduction or with the needle exchange programs and with the hospitals and with the law enforcement is making sure we close the gap. So as we make referrals to different places and get people, you know, in a a safe location, in a treatment center, making sure that we are acknowledging that so that then if we run out, like you said, like there's not enough, well, are there not enough 30-day programs? Does it need to be longer? Is it outpatient programs that we need? And so having the having the data kind of drive future investment because the truth is right. is that this opioid settlement money is coming down and we need to make sure that it's going where it's needed, not
4: going where we're used to sending it. So
0: the opioid settlement money. Nick, thanks for the call. I'm going to
2: take, get some others. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate Real it very much. Quick,
4: I, one more thing I wanted to add before I got off the phone. If someone's not ready for a 30-day recovery or can't get into 30-day recovery, there are some things that someone can do that while they're using to use safer. So there's a phone number that you can call. It's the program's called Never Use Alone. You can call them; they'll stay on the phone with you while you use. And then there's other things like free Narcan, um, using with someone close by who can administer the Narcan if um, there is a, a case of overdose. Because we're in the we're in the middle of an emergency here. People are people are dying left and right, and the medical services that are provided right now are really not cutting the mustard. So. Um, Definitely look up the Harm Reduction Initiative. If, if you do have someone who's using and isn't able to get in treatment right away, we've got to help them.
1: Thanks, Great Nick. suggestions, Nick. Thank you for calling in. Thanks
2: for your- um, we, Let's take another call. We've got um, Dan from Seminole. Dan from Seminole, you're on the line. What's on your mind?
6: Yeah, hi. Uh, I, I'm a pharmacist. I also practiced in recovery when I was working uh, at the VA. And one of the things that uh, I've seen out of, after my VA career was that uh, working in the private stores, we are underutilizing the pharmacies in the area. You know, uh, the, the COVID has been a perfect example of how people can get their vaccines walking in at a pharmacy without any questions asked. Why not have Narcan available as a one-time dose or free? No questions asked. You want you need the Narcan. The pharmacy is will is there to provide it for you with maybe references to other alternative treatments. But it's there. It's a resource people trust. They don't have to um, jump through too many hoops.
2: Dan, um, Jennifer is
0: smiling and nodding as you speak. So you have something to say to Dan? I do, Dan. <laughs> I think that well. So one. Um, through DCF, they are handing out Narcan to a whole host of folks. I don't know if for-profit pharmacies are exempt from that. I know not-for-profits and uh, pharmacies or B-pharmacies, I think they're called, are engaged in this, but as a place of um, helping to distribute Narcan for free. What I would love to see also is that any time um, a pharmacist prescribes an opioid that they also include in the bag, a home disposal kit uh, for any leftover medication because a lot of times these are prescribed not for chronic conditions, although they are prescribed sometimes for chronic conditions. But let's say like I broke my ankle the other day, the other over the summer. And my doctor said, does it hurt bad? Do you need anything for it? I said, no, but the common prescription there is an opioid and and I didn't need it. But had I gotten it, I would have had a ton of leftover pills Mm -hmm. in my medicine cabinet. I went to my neighbor's. Uh, I don't know, three months ago, and I was telling them that I had a headache. They offered me oxycontin. Oh my gosh! I was like, okay, they're eighty. I said, this <laughs> is really nice. Let me take these and destroy these for you because they are here. I'll bring you a home disposal kit. But there's some solutions and like that. Don't flush down the toilet. And right, don't. Jennifer? Yeah, I don't want to eat fish laced toilet. do drinking
1: that water. Um, <laughs> wow.
0: Add that to my Prozac and my uh, and your Viagra. Hose. Yeah. <laughs> your
2: birth control. What, Dan? Were you? What are you saying?
6: prescription that for an OxyContin there has to be at least on file one prescription for Narcan for those patients. I was giving doses uh, you can't believe that people are getting these huge doses and no Narcan. It should be a law that you have to co-prescribe.
0: Dan, I think that's a great idea and actually I'm going to amend my oh we're just going to focus on fentanyl test strips because I actually have been speaking to especially some of the home disposal and other folks and I think that this especially now that we have the state fund for the opioid settlement dollars in addition to the local fund, this would be a perfectly appropriate way of spending some of that money. So well, I Dan, think that's a great idea, Dan. Thanks for calling. And
2: you, maybe you made a difference in our, uh, in our state. We you're, appreciate it very much. You're a wave much. maker, Dan. <laughs> I'm a wave maker. Give it, I'll go with that. Thanks, Dan.
1: <laughs> Speaking of which, you're listening to community-sponsored commercial-free radio. We're powered by volunteers like me, and people like you who support the station, you can show your support by going to wmnf.org and hitting the tip jar to make a donation, especially do it now during Wave Makers.
2: Um so Jennifer, what's your response to people who say the fentanyl problem is because of our federal border policy? And um that that's uh, been a big deal, the um Florida, Let's start with that, just that simple question.
0: Well, I think that's pl- that's not a simple question. but um, it's That is a qu- not a simple question. But, and the reason
1: is because so much of it is coming over the border between the United States and Mexico, right? Is that- and
0: that is accurate. I mean, there are facts, and the facts are is that the majority of the fentanyl is being made in Chinese chemistry labs. It's being shipped over and to the Mexico or brought to the Mexican border, then mixed to the final compound, and then brought into the United States. Um, and that is... The truth, our um, God, border patrol yep. captured enough fentanyl two years ago to kill every man, woman, and child in the Western Hemisphere.
1: Right. Which shows that it's not an open border, everyone uh, who just yeah. keeps hearing this uh, talking point from Republicans that Joe Biden and the Democrats believe in open borders. We, they have turned away 1.3, they have returned 1.3 million people who entered the country illegally in the last 12 months. These are new numbers, but there's still a lot of people who are coming over and And staying.
2: if you're just tuning in, our guest today is Jennifer Webb. She is the executive director of Live Tampa Bay. It's a coalition of community leaders that are trying to stem the problem of um, uh, opioid deaths in our community. So... there is a problem. It's it's coming through the border. Um, our, fe- our Florida Attorney General, Ashley Moody, um, last week issued a press release. She and some other um, attorneys general, 18 attorneys general around the country, are urging President Biden to classify illicit fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. Um, and according to Moody, doing so would require the Department of Homeland Security and the DEA to coordinate with other agencies, including the Department of Defense, as opposed to the federal department simply... Treating the substance as a narcotics control problem, so basically, it's let's declare literally declare war and engage the military. What do you think about that, um, Jennifer?
0: I think that we need better coordination at the federal level in order to really help stem the amount of fentanyl that's coming in, and I think that it is incumbent upon states to also do their job. I mean, we have been forty or fiftieth in behavioral health spending for. 30 years in Florida. I mean, the reason why this has racked us so is not a mystery to me. It's that we haven't invested in the services and in the support and in the programs that help build and maintain and sustain healthy communities. And so I mean, yes, can the federal government do more? Absolutely. Could our state do more? Absolutely. Can our local governments and our businesses do more? Yes. I mean, you don't get to this point if everybody was doing everything that they
1: could. But it does seem like the issue is becoming politicized, yeah. much more so than OxyContin was.
0: Interesting. Because yes. of the immigration.
1: Because debate. of the immigration. Right, because, because
0: OxyContin was um was, was manufactured and, yeah, sold in the U.S. by Big Pharma. Absolutely. Big, Big <laughs> Pharma,
1: who also like to give a lot of campaign contributions, and so they had a lot of support, and they had Rudy Giuliani working for them. I mean, you know.
2: I want to take this call from Carla on Palm Harbor because we were just talking about, you know, Giving people Narcan and having a phone call where you can call somebody up and use with, you know, have somebody like uh, uh, phone assistance while you're using to make sure you don't die or somebody to give you your Narcan if you Narcan if you need it. So, Carla is saying, and I was thinking about this as we were having that conversation that the problem is that people don't care about these people really. So, um, Carla, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Tell us what you're thinking. Are you there? Are you there, Carla? Oh, I guess she's not. But, um, I'm I, here. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Let's talk about that because uh, you have an interesting okay. point, I think.
7: I'm sorry. Um, a lot of people feel that drug users or abusers are like the scum of the earth, that it's your fault that Right. You're using drugs, that it's your fault that you're addicted. And they'd rather see people arrested and put in jail to detox in jail, which is probably the worst place. You could ever go through a detox. And my other fear is the money that's going to come from these settlements has no, um, there's nothing to say where it needs to be spent. You know, a lot of the cigarette money never went to helping people get off of tobacco. A lot of it, we don't ever know where it went. So who's the watchdog on all this, this funding? And if it's the politicians, that scares me.
0: Carla, that's a really great point, and, I th- and luckily you're not alone. I mean, there's a lot of folks who are in behavioral health sector who are really watching the AG's office carefully to see how they—they're the ones who are crafting the rules for the op- the state's opioid settlement dollars and where that goes. Um, because you're right, we don't want it to go to pave roads and to do a whole host no. of other projects like that, like the tobacco or jails. Exactly. Yes. Right. I mean right.
1: Or flying uh, immigrants from Texas to uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know some state up north. So.
0: so we want to make sure that there is that it is going where it's needed, and and so at the state level, the AG's office is responsible for it. At the local county level, so if you're a county with a population more than two hundred thousand you actually have an opioid abatement settlement task force that is responsible for outlining how those dollars are going to be spent and to make sure that they're spent on. I would like to see them spent on evidence-based practices and data-driven programs that are proven effective instead of on pet projects because I'm with you, but it is going to take all of us to engage. And so you can go on your county's website, and look it up and call your county administrator and find out when the next meeting is. Because this is, I would love if we use this money as a way of really transforming our behavioral health system. It's not enough to, to, it's three billion seems like a lot of, it is a lot of money. <laughs> but when you divide it over 22 million people over 20 years, it's a lot less right. than we think. But it's enough that we can, Match it with private private dollars or county dollars or other dollars, and really start to um, support our communities and what they need for their for their behavioral health. We we got thank you for the
2: call, Carla. We um we got an email from Mitch Perry, one of the Bay Area's best reporters, who sent us um, a report from the Cato Institute that says that. Um, of Americans and 60% of Republicans believe most of the fentanyl entering the U.S. is smuggled in by unauthorized migrants crossing the border illegally. But the fact is, according to this uh, report, um, fentanyl smuggling is ultimately funded by U.S. consumers who pay for the opioids, nearly 99% of whom are U.S. citizens. And in 2021, U.S. citizens were 86.3% of convicted fentanyl drug traffickers. 10 times greater than convictions of illegal immigrants for the same offense.
0: Oh, and that's a good point. So coming over the border doesn't mean that it is... Thank you, Mitch. It does not mean that it is a Mexican person coming coming
1: over like... Or Venezuelan.
0: Or Venezuelan Venezuelan, or South America. It doesn't mean that. It just means that it crosses that border. So in according to the Cato Institute, which is not a bastion of left-leaning no, propaganda. Not so <laughs> <I think. laughs> they are absolutely <laughs> libertarians. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they, according to their research, it's Americans who then yeah. who fly down and then bring it north. And so that's a really important distinction. There. And here's
2: another good stat over from this report. Over ninety percent of fentanyl seizures occur at legal crossing points or interior vehicle checkpoints, not on illegal migration routes. So U.S. citizens, when crossing legally, are the best smugglers.
1: Well, you can fit a lot of fentanyl
2: in the
1: trunk of your car. car, Right. right? I mean, because it takes so little. What is it? uh, Five Five grains of sand. Five grains can be deadly. And so it doesn't take very much. And so it's pretty easy to hide. And let's face it. If you've ever been on the Texas-America uh, 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 border, it's a huge border with many crossing points. And it's and, and they're just being overwhelmed with the number of refugees who want to come to this country.
2: Let's hear from Nav in Tampa. Nav in Tampa says he has a possible solution to reduce the fentanyl supply. Oops, I actually hung up on you now. Call back, please. I'm sorry about that.
1: We want to hear solutions.
2: Um, and But I've got another one from JC in Lakeland, and he um, has worked in rehabs and has suggestions for laws to combat fentanyl. JC in Lakeland, you're on the line.
3: Hey, guys. Great program. Very astute observations. Um, degree in psychology, sociology, worked in rehab many years. Um, I want to look at this from rehabilitation, insurance really needs to be readdressed and looking at helping these people. Um, and, and the policies need to be readdressed. Also, um, the laws need to be changed to, to go after people who are attributing to, uh, to fentanyl sales, like what happened with Taylor Hawkins with Foo Fighters. Uh, I play in a band, and, and I know that when, I, when we travel, look, <laughs> if you want it, your rodeo did it for you. Mm-hmm. Stage manager... Look, guys, we've got to be real. If you're assisting, you're part of the problem. If you're, if you, you know, you're killing people, or somebody dies, you got it for them. You're, you're, you're an, you're an assist, you're an assist, uh, associate to murder. Uh, so we've got to address some of these laws. We got to insurance needs to step up, and rehabilitation needs to start happening again. Uh, we just got to get money in and, and the system for rehabilitation. We used to have twenty eight day stays. And we would do a lot of good in turning people around in the chemical dependency units I worked on. But we've just got to get the money back into the system. We've got to change the laws. And just one real quick, there's a big bus um, recently in the news. Uh, a driver was pulled over, had a ton of fentanyl in her car. Um, I'm not sure where it was, but I do remember it was somebody driving on the highway with it. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks for the call, Nev um let's also let's hear from jc in lakeland here we go that's right i dropped the call jc you're on the line what's on your mind are you here jc jc
1: okay
2: let's try nav oh wait we no we oh no we did nav let's do uh let's try jc jc are you on the line no okay here's samantha Samantha in Tampa, you're on the line. What's on your mind?
5: Hi, how are you guys doing? Good. <laughs> Sorry, I was up here at a big hospital. I'm not going to say which hospital, um, but it, I helped. Um, well, you guys are going to know now, <laughs> but um, I helped with the Tampa Idea Exchange um, start mm-hmm. up and running. And it was really interesting on how much it's grown in Tampa um, and how many people I've actually linked care from there because I was, I'm no longer working for them. I'm actually at a recovery center and I've still been able to get some of those patients into my recovery center and also other unfunded patients as well. So it's actually making a huge impact.
2: And what are you seeing in the recovery center, Samantha? Are you seeing a lot of people struggling with fentanyl and are you seeing people recover?
5: Yes. um, So currently if they come in, I've seen them come in and not test negative for opiates, but positive for fentanyl. And they're like, "All I've done is smoke, you know, meth or amphetamines, and they have fentanyl in their system
2: because so, they don't even know."
5: Yeah, even you know everything. Everything is laced. And right now, even I-
2: marijuana. I hate-
5: yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Because people yes. will see that potentially as a less—it's a less deadly drug when it's in its natural state, but. If it's being, uh, yeah.
5: It's everywhere. It is just, it's rampant. And the hospitals don't have the fentanyl strips. So when a patient used to come in, I can clearly see they're in withdrawal because I'm an addiction specialist. And the doctor's like, well, they didn't test positive for any opiates. I'm like, well, where's the fentanyl test? That's what they've been on. Mm -hmm. And there was just, it's just really bad. Um, Well, thank you.
2: Thank you for the call, Samantha. I appreciate it. And Thank you. And uh, we're going to take more of these calls here, but we've got just about 10 minutes left in the show, a little less than that. And I want to talk a little bit about recovery because it is September Recovery Month, and um, Jennifer wanted to talk a little bit about that. because And and tell us why talking about recovery is important. Well,
0: talking about why that recovery is possible helps to connect people to recovery. It gives them the sense of courage that, okay, well, if somebody did it, then I can do it too. No other health narrative. Do you stop the narrative at death? All of the other cancer, um, I don't know, diabetes, whatever. It's like life after the illness, and people need to know that it's possible. And you know, I when I first started this work, I spoke about my sister. My sister died from an opioid. She was one of the casualties from the opioid epidemic, but. I'm also a person in long term recovery. I have 23 years of sobriety. For me, that means sobriety from all substances and alcohol. And, you know, me articulating that and saying that was much harder than identifying my sister as someone who had passed away from it. And I think that speaks to the stigma that still is associated. Um, and I really am grateful for. Uh, leaders like Senator Roussan, who's been very vocal about his recovery, because that is how people know that recovery is possible. I mean, I have a life that I couldn't have imagined. For me, service is really important. I've been able to serve up in Tallahassee. I still live a life of service and leadership, and um, and that would not have been possible for my 19-year-old self, which is how old I was. I was I was a homeless. Teen, living on the streets of New Orleans when my grandmother came and found me and scooped me up and said, we have to get you help. Like You're better than this. I love you so much. If you only could reconnect with that precious child that I know that you are, you would not be doing this. And It was a long road for recovery for me. Were you in a, tre-
2: shares- also- a treatment facility or did you do 12-step programs?
0: Or I did 12-step programs. I didn't do a treatment facility at first. Um, at A year and a half sober, that's when I needed specialized behavioral health care. And I went inpatient because some traumas had come up from my um, childhood that I needed to deal with. But it was only once I was clean and so once I was in recovery for 18 months that I was even safe enough to deal with that, um, with those issues. It does show also that addiction
1: comes in all forms. There are people who are on the street And there are people who are in offices who are professionals working regular jobs yet they're struggling.
2: Well, that earlier caller who said from the park bench to park place. That's right. Exactly I thought that, right. I never, have it's never heard great. that before and I thought that was really interesting.
0: And I really liked what Carla said about like, you know, people when they think of addicts, they think of folks who are on the street. They don't think of people who are in the cubicle next to them, struggling, me. Your next door neighbor. Your next door neighbor. And the, know the know truth it. is, is that these are the folks who are struggling. There's no way that we lose 30 people each and every week in this region and not have it impact all of our families. And so, so maybe this is the time that we do something well, different.
2: and speaking of which here's margo from sarasota margo from sarasota you're on the line you say you know somebody who died from a fentanyl overdose
7: uh well so
8: this was my son jonathan died um it'll be two years ago this january oh i'm sorry 20th yeah it's been awful and um Uh, It's so serendipitous that I got in the car and turned the radio on because um, I actually am taking an entrepreneur class and we're supposed to come up with something to solve a problem in society. And uh, this isn't why I took the class at all, but I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could stop someone from dying from a fentanyl overdose? I guess because of my experience. And um, I just got so much information from the 20 minutes I've been in my car. I'm, I'm driving and riding at the same time. Uh, keep but driving, I,
2: drive in circles. You can keep listening. Yeah, but be careful.
8: <laughs> my um, my errand destination. Anyways, I was you know, just talking with my younger son on the phone last night. And I said, Here's a crazy idea because they want us to throw everything at the wall. I said, How about if we put a chip in a, in a known um, attic? So that when they stop breathing, you know, we someone can come immediately with Narcan, and he's like, "Oh no, that's a terrible idea." You know, remember with the, um, you know, everybody was so afraid of being chipped with the um, right. vaccinations, and and I said, "But you know, you know, crazy. That's how crazy idea. Crazy ideas sound crazy at first, and then become like more like people get used to the idea." And um, anyways, I just think there's a lot we could be doing, and. If, Part of this presentation I, I'm going to have to do for class, I looked up, I've, just, I've only taken one class, so anyway, <laughs> um, I looked up all the people, famous people with an alcohol addiction, and if those people were alive today, a good majority of them would be addicted to fentanyl, and we would have lost them. And when we think of, like, Winston Churchill not surviving his addiction, or any other famous person, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, I think we just have this awful stigmatism around... <clears throat> drugs as opposed to alcohol, and um, and yes, yeah, so many families have been affected by this, and um, I just I got a lot from this, and I was really pissed off that I had to go run this errand, and I got in the car. And-
2: <laughs> you can listen on the archives, Margo. You can listen yeah. to it later. You can listen to the whole thing um, online later. And Margo,
0: if you want even more, uh, you can go to our Facebook, um, Love Tampa Bay on Facebook, and it pinned at the top.
8: I was driving.
0: Pinned at the Top is um, a show that we're going to start at noon that's going to talk about businesses and what they can do to bolster behavioral health.
8: Okay, so I am a mental health therapist. I mostly work with mental... I mean, a lot of my clients are recovering addicts, but, um, yeah, I usually see them after they've gotten, some, they've gotten their addiction under control. So I'm, I'm very interested in this subject, and, of course, I have the personal story to go with it. So yep. yeah, I will
2: um, I will do that. Thank Thanks, so Car- Margo. And I want to read this one last email. This is... Um, uh- Someone who says, I work for a major grocery store chain, um, and all of our managers are required to be certified first aid responders. We have AED machines in all of our stores. And she wants to spearhead an initiative to get Narcan stocked in those first aid kits. And she wants to
0: know, Jennifer, what you think about that idea. It's a great idea. Email me at jw.omnipublic.global. At That's jw.omnipublic.global.
1: And if people want to get involved in your effort to combat this scourge, what can they do?
0: Like us on Facebook at live- of Tampa Bay. That's live, as in don't die, live, or live your best life Tampa Bay. Thanks, y'all. Um, thanks so much for being on the program with us, Jennifer. I really
2: appreciate it very much. Thanks to John for answering the phones and everybody who called and um, and emailed us. Stay tuned um, for music from Harris and Nash up next after the NPR News. This is uh, WMNF Tampa. <laughs>